23, 25 through 35. Will you turn your Bibles there? There we go. There we go. I just want to say, isn't it great to praise our God? And it always, it just amazes me that when from our hearts we're singing those praises to him, which we are, and that's a right thing to do, and it's wrong not to do it. But the Lord knows our hearts. And not only does he receive it, like in, in, according to what he tells us in First Peter, as a sweet-smelling savior of aroma, as a fruit we offer unto him, he blesses us and edifies us when we do it also. He's such a good God, isn't he? Amen. And I'll read out of, you know, we always say there's a reason for every word in Scripture. And this is the parts of the building of the church that the Lord wanted to reveal to us. He wants us to know about him for a fact and to see his hand through it all in the middle of this church. Amen. Now let us read in Acts 23, beginning in verse 25. And he wrote a letter after this manner. Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews, and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army, and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth into their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds, and when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee, and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul, and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow they left the horsemen to go with him, and returned to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea, and delivered the epistle to the governor presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. Let us pray. Father, we know that your word is true. We know that that all that you have revealed to us, Lord, is for our understanding, is for our good, is for our edifying, Lord. Lord, we ask now, give us ears to hear. May your word teach, encourage, and build up your people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. About 3,500 years ago, Satan sist, if you will, hissed these four words into Eve's ears. Yea, hath God said. I stand before you this morning grateful and thankful for a completed and most reliable and trustworthy copy of God's word. Amen? Brethren, it is an elder's job on... Well, part of his high calling, let's just put it that way, part of his high calling to, to warn us, all of us, concerning God's word. Amen? 
And when you hear someone make comments like this, like I've heard recently, me and several other scholars believe that this verse or large portions of the end of a book should not be in the Bible. Even though that verse and that large portion of the end of the book has been in the scriptures for 2,000 years. Brethren, you should run. And you should run very quickly. Because your souls and the souls of those who hear that kind of unholy evil dribble are in danger. When you have a man who does not believe in the, as we do here, verbal and plenary inspiration of God's word, you run away. Because it isn't long, pretty soon, that verse and this verse and that verse and this verse. Dean and I were talking the other day. I'm thankful, brethren, that we have, we use the King James Bible here. Now, I'm not a King James only, but I believe it is the best version of the Bible. Amen? There are other versions that are trustworthy. But when a man stands up and says those sorts of things, you are in trouble. And so just let me just give you a warning this morning. As I have seen some of my brothers depart to a place that believes that. The man stands up and says that in front of them. Brethren, you are in danger. Serious danger. This morning we have in our hands, and we're blessed to have in our hands, a complete uh, copy of, as I said, and trustworthy scriptures before us. What else, brethren, do we have? Can you imagine Mike and his emotions every week coming up here? I change like the wind sometimes, brethren, and I know maybe it's just me, maybe it's not you, but it is me, and we have a sure foundation. What did Peter say to the other apostles when he was writing? He says, hey, we were with him on that sacred mountain. We saw him. We heard him speak, but we have a what? A more sure foundation word. Brethren, please, in all seriousness, you must be very careful with your soul concerning this matter. This morning I stand before you believing every word, every word, verbal and plenarily, that is in this book, amen, because it is profitable for teaching and for doctrine and for edification and for all of these things, brother. And our text this morning is no different. We've been in one of the greatest, well, the greatest inspired narrative of church history ever put down. And I pray this morning that as we have been going through this, that we've learned some things, not only theologically, because there's a lot of theology there that was laid out, but also practically, brethren, putting that into practice. Those things that are so needful for us today in the world that we live in, in a world where everybody's so flippant and just out we go. It's stunning and amazing to me. And so, as an elder, it is. it behooves me, again, just to warn us all to be very careful about what the man of God who is handling the word of God says to you and comes into your ears. Remember what uh, Paul wrote on to Timothy, young Timothy. Remember that? He says to take heed unto yourself and to your doctrine, to watch narrowly. Why? Because you'll save those who hear you. Now that word save doesn't mean you're saving. It means you'll protect them. That they're protected by the word of God. That's what keeps us, brethren, where we are. And so when a man stands up and says things like, the whole ending of a book should not be there, you run and hide quickly. Amen? This morning we are again privileged to have the inspired history of 
the church here in our hands together. And we remember the last time that we were together. The Apostle Paul, quite frankly, as we've been moving along through the whole book of Acts, but this is now his third riot that he's just been safely brought through. Think of that for a moment, brother. And all of them were directed at him and at his preaching. His third riot and also the third time that God had spared him from death because generally when someone came into the city like that and preached those things, they never made it out alive. They did indeed, were pulled in pieces as uh, Claudius was afraid was going to happen to Paul. But now his third riot's been through. He's been safely through. The Lord made him some promises. Don't worry, Paul, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to be preaching in Rome. And here again in our text, we begin to see again the working of God in all of this. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, brother, that God would be so kind that he would put Paul's nephew in amongst the conspirators. (laughs) And he'd be sitting there and he'd hear what they were going to do to Paul. And then, amazing as we saw last week, amen, that, that, that God would have a ready instrument in the centurion that would hear it and take Paul's nephew to Claudius. And then Claudius would hear it, amen, and then he would, as we saw last week, he brought this garrison together of an army, basically a small army, 470 men, you remember. And right in the middle of that, as we concluded last week, we saw the Apostle Paul riding on some horses, right in the middle of the 470 men, protected by the hand of God, whereby he provided, through Claudius, this instrument, Paul's protection, because, Paul, you are indeed going to Rome. And so we take it up this morning here in our text from really... That, that point, right from there, and it leads us really to our text and to the title of our sermon, and he wrote a letter after this manner, which at first glance, again, when we sometimes cruise over the top of Scripture, it appears not to be, if you will, of any significance, but we will soon find out and soon understand through the Holy Writ, every word, every word that's been preserved. That it is indeed a divinely ordained preparation and protection for Paul, who will soon stand before Felix, the governor. So let us begin this morning with our text. Look at verses 25 and 26 there of Acts chapter 23, as Howard has just read them, but we'll read them again. I love to hear God's word melodiously sink down into my ears. Amen? We're reading Psalms 3 last night. It was, it's so amazing when you, you read the Bible with your, with your children, amen? And, you know, each, each child had two verses. Stevie had two, and Seth and Selah, and then Levi had two. And it's so interesting to hear them read the Word of God to you. It is so amazing. It's, it's, it's kind of, it brings you joy, brings you laughter in some areas, because no, nobody, that's not that word, that's not what that was, but it is funny, to, but it's so beautiful, isn't it, just to hear God's word. And so we read this together, look at verses 25 and 26. The Bible says, and he wrote a letter after this matter, Claudius Lysias unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting. Well, really what we've got here, brethren, again, is, if you will, is Lysias is writing this letter And what he's doing, he's just simply summarizing, if you will, the events that have taken place. And he's letting the governor know somewhat some information about the Apostle Paul. So the events that have led up to me sending the Apostle Paul to you, I'm just going to summarize them for you, which is always important because it behooved a subordinate officer to inform his superior officer 
why this prisoner is being sent to him. So this is one of the purposes that, uh, that we see in Scripture. But we notice this, that he uses the title of honor, the most excellent governor. This is most interesting when you figure this out in his introduction. Now, that, that term most excellent literally means this, being of great virtue or worth, <laughs> eminent or distinguishing for what is amenable, valuable or laudable. But brethren, if you do any study, if you do any historical study at all of the governor Felix, you will soon find out that Felix is anything but excellent. <laughs> it's, it's a stunning thing. Historically, historians Josephus and many others have written about this man that Claudius just addresses as the most excellent Felix. In fact, Tacius says this of him, with all cruelty and lust, he exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave because he was a slave who was freed. And so, again, they're writing of what kind of man that Claudius here is addressing. Most excellent Felix. In 60 AD, he was sent to Rome accused of cruelty and misuse of his office for personal gain. Imagine that. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, we should have some of our politicians sent to jail for some of this stuff. It's amazing. He married three important women in rapid succession and earned the nickname husband of three queens. <laughs> I mean, this guy was an amazing thing. And here's Lysias. Hey, most excellent Felix. Amazing. And Holy Writ tells us that he was married to a Jewess named Drusilla at this time, who had been married to another king, King Emsa, when Felix induced her to leave her husband and live with him. Look here how the Bible tells us this. Look at Acts chapter 24. Look at verse number uh, 24. Look what the Bible says there. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith of Christ. So here we've got Felix, who's marrying some women right in a row, that he's known as the man of three queens. Just, if you will, an amazing thing, brother, and when you consider that. In other words, Felix had the morals of a dog, or as my wife would say, a pig. <laughs> right, honey? That's, I mean, we've had so many things. I don't know, brothers, as you look around and see men falling and things falling. It's just, it's just amazing to watch it and behold it. But that's the moral. This is the kind of man that he had. He was one who did not exhibit virtue or excellence. In fact, his specialty... And again, this is where the letter comes in. God's providence, his protection, his, if you will, forerunning before Paul gets and stands before Felix. This is where it all comes in because he was known throughout all of the land. All of it. He was that he delighted in the stamping out and the crushing down of any Jewish, uh, of anything. Anything tied to the Jews, he lived and thrived on making sure that they were put to death, that they were crushed immediately. Amazing, isn't it? And here we have God again doing these things. In fact, it's recorded of him that it was done in some of the most brutal and cruel and ruthless ways. So this was his kind of case. This is right up his alley, if you will. He specialized in dealing with people like Paul. And it was swift, and it was quick. But not here, brethren. Lysias addresses, if you will, not the man, 
but the office, the governor. That's who he's addressing. He addresses the office of the government very much like we do. Brother, when we are in a court of law and you hear the lawyer standing there speaking to the judge, I know we can all say this. What does he call him? Your honor. This is the idea. This is what we're seeing here. He's addressing the office of the governor. I mean, brethren, listen. God has given us a president that has many legs up on Felix. You think Felix had the morals of a dog and a pig. We haven't seen anything yet. And yet, what do we say, Mr. President? Because we honor the office, not the man. For sure, brethren, someone who doesn't know what a woman or a man is, someone who doesn't know whether you should, as a, a grown-up, if you should be doing young things to young people. I mean, that kind of moral pig is what we have. Unbelievable, stunningly. And yet, brethren, nothing's changed, has it? I... But, there's one thing I learned about preaching through this particular book and any book in the Bible because it always addresses men's issues, doesn't it? And I mean men as a men and women and children, right? Our human natures, the issues that we deal with, and we just do not change. What Paul was dealing with, what God is doing in Paul's life, God is doing in your life right now dealing exactly with the same kind of people, dealing with many sometimes of the same circumstances. God is there silently watching over you and guiding you and directing you if you are a child of his. This is what we see. In fact, we know for a fact that it has to be the office that's being addressed and not the man. Look at Acts chapter 24. Look there, if you would, verses 2 and 3. Tertullius who is going to show up next week. He's the accuser of Paul, who's not there yet, but he's going to show up. Look at how he addresses Felix. Verse 2, And when he was called forth, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by three we enjoy great quietness. Uh, and what happened was, we'll talk about that next week, but uh, Felix did indeed do some things that were right. He eliminated crime. <laughs> he was cutting down on crime. People were being killed, and he stopped that something that our president and several liberals could certainly use some help on. Amen? Letting the criminals go, letting it just, it's just unbelievable. But this is what at least he's being praised for. He says, uh, seeing that uh, by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix with all thankfulness. So here again we have a man who's expressing his gratefulness, not to Felix the dog, but to the office. In fact, the Apostle Paul does the same thing in the book of Acts. Look quickly, Acts chapter 26. Look at verses 24 and 25. Again, this is how we know that Paul, Paul's not going to say this kind of thing to someone who's an immoral dog, okay? He's going to address the office. Acts 26, look at verses 24 and 25. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and soberness. So again, we see here again the office that's being elevated, certainly not the man. Well, 
as we continue on here, I want us again to go back to Acts 23. Look at verses 27 and 28. We notice again, just again, this is simply something that he is again summarizing in his letter. He's letting Felix know this. But interestingly enough, as all natural men like to do, what do we call that when we don't include something in something we're telling someone? It is the sin of what? Omission. You'll notice here a big sin of omission in his writing, which is quite amazing. And again, as natural men do, we all want to self-protect ourselves, amen, to a degree. And so this is what he's doing. Look there, if you would, at verses 24, or 27 and 28 of Acts chapter 23. Look what he does here. He says, This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him. Sounds like he's some kind of a hero, amen? He's trying, to, he's trying to present himself to Felix as some kind of a great hero. Look what I did. When I, when I, when I hey, this guy was a Roman citizen. They were going to take him and beat him, and look what I did. I rode in and I saved him, which he did by the hand of God, of course. But he forgot to mention something in his letter. Then, then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. Again, as I said, Lysias here, by way of omission, lies to Felix by implying that he had learned of Paul's Roman citizenship right away and rescued him like a hero. <laughs> what did he forget to tell Felix? What did he forget to include? Well, he forgot to tell him that he had him bound twice. Forgot to tell him that he was in, uh, within inches of having Paul's life beaten out of him. He conveniently forgets and does not tell. The lie of omission. This is what he does. He leaves that out of his letter. That's why we're looking at this a little bit deeper. As I said, like natural man often men do to save faith, he's not telling the full narrative, the full story. He is fearful of being reprimanded. But then he does this. Look at verse 29. He leaves most of that part out. And then, but he does do this, verse 29, whom I perceive to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or bonds. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid in wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. Well, Lysias here, of course, he is saying that Paul was innocent so far as the, Jew, the Roman law was concerned. In fact, he said, I don't even find anything wrong with this man concerning their law. There's some kind of a, if you will, quibble or quabble over their law. In fact, I don't see anything that he's, he's condemned by the Roman law because he is a Roman citizen. And secondly, I don't see anything there where he would have done something ill, if you will, against the Jews do you guys remember what his charge was? See, this is why sometimes I recap stuff, because we're forgetful. Do you remember what they charged him of? They charged him of doing what? Bringing a Gentile where? Into the temple. That was his, that was his allegation. That's what they charged him with. And old, and old Claudius is going, <laughs> I don't see anything. I see nothing. He didn't violate the Roman law. And, and by the way, I never had him bound, never had him scourged. Oops, I forgot to tell you that. Amen? But he didn't, by any stretch of the imagination, see where Paul had anything that was worthy of death or anything else. Again, it just, it reminds you, it's, those things were baseless. There was no proof. 
And yet again, we saw what they did to the Lord Jesus. Now they're doing it to the Apostle Paul. And the Lord just continues, amen, to keep his promise. This is what we can glean, brethren, from all of this. He continues to keep his promise. Hey, Paul, and this is going to come in for us practically at the end. Hey, Paul, I'm sending you to Rome. So no matter what happens, no matter what you go through, and sometimes, brethren, people go through some horrible things. No matter what, I'm bringing you to Rome. I promised you that. And certainly we're going to see the ending of that. So look there at verses 31 through 34. As we, again, this is, again, something that is just a summary of things. And so we're kind of zinging along right through the text with Luke. Verse 31, then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipartus. And on the morrow, they left the, uh, the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle. So part of the, part of the detachment went back. They were out of pretty much the Jewish country. Now Paul was going to be able to make it on to, to Caesarea. Verse 33, who when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what providence he was. And when he understood that, he was of Cilicia. So again, Luke records for us here, brother, it's not rocket science. We don't need to get down deep into the weeds, if you will, that uh, his military escort left Jerusalem. They left at night, amen, and traveled as far as Antipartus, a city which was about 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So again, they're traveling about as far as you could go on a horse, and the, it's that kind of regiment as they're going. So they go there, and then they, the next day they finished their journey to Caesarea, the following day, traveling about 25 miles to Caesarea, which is modern-day Tel Aviv, just so you kind of have an idea of where Paul is at. This is where he's at right now as he's been escorted up to see Felix. The military leader, if you will, delivers the letter to Felix and then hands Paul over to him. Here's your prisoner. This is the guy uh, we're talking about right here, and he reads the letter and interrogates Paul asking him what providence he was from. And again, to us, we sometimes don't understand this, but it's very important that he did that. He found out he was from Cilicia. Amen? And he asked the question because if Paul came from another district, from another jurisdiction, that he would more than likely have to go to the governor of that jurisdiction. So Felix is licking his chops. There's a Jewish man coming my way. I just want to make sure so that I don't get in trouble if I try this man or if I end up killing this man, that I am free and clear. Again, not really caring about Paul, but just simply following some Roman law. In fact, look here at an example. Look at Luke chapter 23. Luke, he liked to record these kinds of things. Look at Luke chapter 23. Again, just to show us from the word of God that this is what Felix is doing, that he's making sure. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 23. Look at verse number 3 there, if you will. We'll just read a few passages of Scripture. This, of course, is his first Roman trial. And we see here verse number 3, And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Then said Pilate to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault with this man. And they were uh, the more fierce saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning from Galilee, from Galilee to this place. Judea is Jewry. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. 
And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him where? To Herod. That's where he sent him, who himself also was at Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him uh, of a long season, because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped that, it, that to have seen some miracle done by him. Then he questioned with him in the many words, but he answered him, nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And you remember what that means. They voted against Christ as he stood before Pilate. So again, Pilate asked the same question. Are you from here? Oh, you're not from my jurisdiction, so I'm going to send you to Herod because Herod is the one who has to try you. And so that's what is taking place here. Felix is simply making sure that, hey, you're bringing me this prisoner. You're sending me this letter. I just want to make sure that I can get my hands on him legally. And so this is what we're seeing as we participate here in Luke's other letter. Look back there now at Acts chapter 23. Look at verse number 35. Look what the Bible says there. I will hear thee, he said, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. Well, brethren, again, we read verse 35, and sometimes we kind of toss right over the top of it. But verse 35 is indeed Paul's first opportunity. This is the first open opportunity that Paul has been given by God to speak to someone at this level of authority, namely the governor. And it's much more even deeper than that because verse 35 is the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord Jesus Christ made to Paul some 20 years earlier. And I want again to see this, to affirm our faith in what the Lord Jesus says and what God says he will do. So I want you to turn back with me 20 years earlier to the promise that the Lord Jesus, again, this is the beginning of that. This is where Paul then goes out. He, he's here before the governor. He gets before kings, and it ends up where, brethren? In the palace itself. God keeping his promise. Look there at Acts chapter 9. Let's just look at this quickly. Acts chapter 9. Look at here again. The beginning of a promise that was made 20 years ago. It kind of reminds me, you know, I liken it a lot of times to things that we pray for. <laughs> um, maybe you're like me. You've been praying for your children. You've been praying for a lost family. You've been praying for lost people a long, long time. A long time. Consistently praying. All the time. Think of this. 20 years earlier, Paul had said, or the Lord Jesus promised Paul that this is exactly what he was going to do. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul? He could not even begin to fathom that this is how God would take him into the palace. Can you imagine that, brethren? Think of that for a moment. I mean, think of this. I'm going to preach to kings. I'm going to preach in the palace. But this is how I'm going to get you there. You're not just walking in. You're not just going to walk up the Capitol steps. I'm going to use these other means to save the others who will believe in me around as you are being brought to Rome. God's always working. He's always moving in unseen ways we can't even comprehend. And it's the same thing here with Paul. He couldn't have never comprehended. This is how you're going to get to stand before the governors, before the kings, and preach in the palace. But this is precisely the promise that was made. Look there if you would. Luke chapter 9, this was again 20 years earlier. The Bible says, but the, Lord Je but the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, and what? And kings, and before the children of Israel. 
This was 20 years ago. Again, as I said, you could never imagine if someone tells you you're going to be preaching before kings and you got your Bible in your hand, you know, you're going to go, you think you're just going to walk right in there with, with no problems, no troubles, no nothing. He could have never imagined that it was through arrest, that he was going to be saved three times from death, that there was going to be riots caused by him. And here he is now standing right where God promised that he would be although in a way different way than one can even imagine. And brethren, again, I just think of the practicality of it. So often in our own lives, we have plans. We think of things. We pray all of these things, and we think it's going to go a certain way. Now, the Lord's going to answer those prayers, but he'll answer it his way. That's right. And it's not always the way we think. This is what you see here with Paul. It is quite a stunning thing. In fact, look at Acts 26. Paul's so joyous over it that he's standing before the governor. Look at here in Acts chapter 26. Look what he says. And brethren, all of us should have this kind of attitude. When the Lord would open up a door, either way, to stand before a lost person and preach the Lord Jesus Christ to them, however he may do that. Look at verse 26. Look at verse number 1. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself, I think myself, what? Happy. The Lord is keeping his promise to me. The one he made 20 years earlier. I'm now standing before King Agrippa. And once we get into this text, you'll see the depth of the doctrine and the gospel that Paul is given free reign to preach standing before King Agrippa. Look at what it says. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all things where um, I am accused of the Jews. And there it is again. God opens the door. He's standing before the king in ways, again, brother, you can't imagine. They would never think it would go that way because as we know, the next five years from this text on and even earlier for the next five years, Paul is a Roman what? Prisoner. He spends two years here in Caesarea, then he's on to Rome. It takes two years from this text to get to Rome. And then he's there for two years preaching the gospel in Rome. Sometimes we don't think of that. We think we read along here and it just stuff just happens like that. <laughs> you know why, brother? Because we're Americans. What do we have? We got Pop-Tarts. We got pop this, we got quick this, we got quick cheese, we got everything you can imagine. It's got to be right now, but not in God's economy. Not in God's economy. It's his timing. Our patience, brethren, must be ever sharpened when we're working and doing the work of the Lord. Always. And this is what we see in Paul, a servant of Christ who has bent his knee to him, understanding that all that's taking place, everything that's happening, is sifted through God's loving, caring hand for him. Think of that, how personal that makes it. Again, sometimes we read this stuff and we take ourselves out of it. And I'm not inserting us in it, but there's principles here. There's principles here. It's hard for one to bend the knee and wait on God. Some of the young people here who are waiting on God for your spouse, wait on God. 
Be still, Brad. <laughs> Be still, Stephen. Be still, you youngsters. Be still. Just think of how happy those of us who waited on the Lord, and there's several of us in here. I, I really think of Josiah. Just, I think of you guys back there. I think of many of us. You waited upon the Lord, and the Lord blessed it. It's stunning. It's the same thing here, brothers. It's the same. Men can be wrong. I'm wrong. God is never wrong. And this is what we see. Look there, if you would, one more verse. Philippians chapter 1. Paul, again, reminds us years later, again, of the promise that the Lord Jesus made to him. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse number 12. Again, the Apostle Paul remembering the words of the Lord Jesus. Verse 12, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of what? The gospel. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the what? Palace. There it is again, brethren. This is how Paul was brought in before the kings in the palace, and this is how he got there. Under arrest as a prisoner, not so much of the Roman government, but of who? Who was Paul a prisoner of? The Lord Jesus Christ. This is how God works. This is how he does it. He's in the palace and in all other places, Paul says. Look at verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident of by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without what? Fear. So again, as we see God working in Paul's life and, and, and getting him and placing him and putting him right where he is supposed to be, isn't it beautiful that he's right in the Lord's will? You and I wouldn't think that. I'm a prisoner, I'm this, I'm that. We wouldn't think we're in the Lord's will. And he's right smack dab in the middle of God's perfect will for him. It's a glorious thing, brother. What a great principle we see here. Again, not to repeat myself, but to repeat myself. It's a glorious thing when we consider these things. I like, as I close this morning, what one pastor said. He said this, God was using everything. From theological arrogance, the Jews. <laughs> Think of this, brother, and how God is working. To family loyalty, to religious hatred. He's using all of that, every bit of it. To military power, to Roman justice, to spiritual vision, keeping his promise as he moved his witness to Rome. All of it, God is working through and keeping his word. It's a stunning thing. Now let me say this, just as a, again a practical. I've, I just think again, it's, it, as one who reads the word of God and believes in the word of God. Paul needed the promises from the Lord Jesus. He was given those as a, if you will, an encourager, an encouragement. Remember how we started out the, our message this morning? How many riots was he involved in? Three. How many times did he escape death? Three, at least at, at this point. The Lord shows up and says, hey, Paul, don't worry. You'll be preaching in Rome before long. 
Well, uh, not long in my understanding, maybe in yours. In about four years, you'll be there. It's an amazing thing. Both promises from 20 years before and that promise that was made recently to him in the book of Acts. Listen, that he might receive, and brethren, again, this is so important, that he might receive the promises with a confident and foundational faith. That Paul can see what God said. Paul can see God working that out, just like we as Christians must do. We look in Scripture. You may not realize this, brother, but there's over 3,000 promises that God makes in Holy Writ. Now, not all of them are for us or to us, but they're certainly for us. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we can look and we can see that God said this. And you know what God did? He followed through just as he said he would. Over and over and over and over and over again. What does that do for us, brethren? When you're a young family, Keith and Morgan over here, you got these young kids and you're trying to get through this, brethren, this too shall pass. Brethren, these, you know, these, it passes. It's a beautiful thing. I know you're praying and you think it's not going to, but it will. Pretty soon you'll be 150 like me, having grandkids and younger kids, and you'll say to yourself, Lord, slow it down a little. Let me enjoy my young children. Because the second time around, there's a lot more joy. You take time to smell, if you will, if we can say this, the roses. Because it's gone. It's gone like that. You can't ever recoup it. So enjoy it, brethren. These young families we have, enjoy it. The Lord is working in your lives, bringing about his perfect will for you. 3,000 promises, brethren. Let us believe. Let us trust. Let us understand that he is and will follow through in what he says. That's the biggest thing, brethren, that as I look at Paul's life, this portion of it specifically, this is what I see over and over again. God's faithfulness, working his plan perfectly. And Paul, being a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ, being obedient, waiting patiently, seeing and watching the Lord work. Amen? I pray you'll do the same. I pray I will too, as I've been praying for years and years, for my children, for all of you, for the Lord's church. Man, sometimes you get disappointed, don't you? You get down a little bit. Things happen. And all you can do is say, but it's the Lord's will. It was his will for this to happen. Let me therefore submit to that and be in his will according to his word. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice this morning in the word of God. We thank you for every word every jot and every tittle. We thank you, Father, that you have for 2,000 years almost now 
this New Testament canon was put together. And down through the ages of time, you used great men. Great men. And wives, of course, behind the great men and family. But you use great men to meticulously make sure that it is preserved. Every word. It would be different if the long ending of Mark suddenly showed up two years ago. You could say, well, me and the other theologians don't think this should be in here. Because then you'd go, well, let's do some investigating. But it's been there for 2,000 years. And men way smarter than these smart aleck, pointy-headed, whatever they are, who they, whoever they think they are. To take that out in this verse in John 8, we're going just, just to pluck them all out of there. Meanwhile, they've been there for 2,000 years. Leave your hands off. And if you don't believe the word of God, preacher, you step down and shut your mouth before you cause more damage, which is exactly what's happening. Creating subtle doubt in the word of God, in the minds of people. 3,500 years ago, that's precisely what Satan did. And that battle rages today and it'll rage on. But the Lord will prevail. Father, we pray for men who believe the word of God. We don't always understand it. And I'm the first one to raise my hand and say, I don't understand that portion of it. But this I know. That it is to be there. And that it is behooved upon me as a student of the word of God to study it out and to figure out and try as the Spirit of God illuminates to understand it. This is what we must do. So, Father, we pray again as you have down through the ages of time preserved your word. We thank you for that. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his life. Thank you for what we're reading here as we continue to traverse down through the inspired history of the church. We believe every word. We trust every word. Father, now will you grant unto us the ability to understand every word. Father, I pray for those this morning who are lost here. Just this morning in Bible study. <laughs> thinking about and hearing the testimony of men who lived. <laughs> My goodness. Over a thousand years ago. 1,500 years ago. How they were reprobates. How they believed this heresy and that heresy. And they were caught up in this and caught up in that. And th all through their life, Augustine, all through his life, you were simply drawing him along. And I had no idea of his testimony until this morning. How that he agreed with his mind, but his heart was not changed. He did not want to repent. He did not want to give up some of the lustful, evil things he was involved in. But he was assenting in his mind that the Bible was true. And it wasn't until, as Brother Dean laid out for us this morning, that 
the, the Holy Scriptures when he was alone and he was reading and it, it just fell right open to the perfect portion of Scripture that he needed to read. Romans 13, where we are to flee, we are to give up, not to be involved in the lustful things of the flesh. And it is there that he was saved because his mind and his heart were in conjunction with the Word of God. And so... Father, I thank you for that. Hey, again, something that you've done in all of our lives who are saved. But it's so good to hear it so long ago. And we, this morning, stand upon his shoulders and many, the shoulders of many other men who were faithful in the word, who believed every word. Tyndale, all of them, just <laughs> believed in every word. So, Father, we thank you for those men. And may we, as they followed Christ, as we follow Christ, may we be good leaders and examples of those men, believing every word. We thank you now and pray all these things in the name, the Bible says that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, the one at which every mouth, indeed, is coming a time when they will confess that that he is Lord to the glory of God. We thank you now and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.